You know, when I started writing the sermon for this week, I posted that I was studying and writing, and then Sarah Troop, one of our members, posted, you won't get past the word God, she replied to me. And I thought, I'm a bit incredulous at that claim. I will, in fact, get past that. Sarah's been sitting under my preaching, however, since she was in high school, and it turns out that she knows me better than I do. So I'm going to spend two weeks on this verse. And today I want to accomplish two objectives as we begin this book. The first objective I want to accomplish is I want to provide an overview for the book of Genesis. I just want to anchor you, really, if you will, in the book of Genesis to understand how the book falls out as a unit. Second, I want to begin helping build a foundation of our understanding of Genesis in the work of our triune Lord. You might call this a sermon that gives you bearings on the book in general and that lays some foundation for this God of creation being the God whom Christians worship. It's essentially like I'm giving you an introduction to Genesis and a kind of excursus on who this God of creation is, which I'll again pick up some more next week. So let's start with the first goal that I have, which is to give you an overview of the book of Genesis. And perhaps it's important that I start here because I don't presume that everyone here is a Christian, nor do I presume that everyone here is deeply familiar with their Bibles. So I'm going to start with the simplest sort of facts and try to get you from there into some things that will cause you to or push you to think a little harder. So let's start with this. This is a book in what we call the Old Testament. In other words, if you are not familiar with your Bibles, we tend to have the Old Testament, 39 books. And the New Testament, 27 books, comprising a Bible of 66 books. And Genesis is the first book of the whole of the Bible. Genesis is actually the first book of a five-book scroll. all came together. We sometimes refer to that scroll as the law or as the Pentateuch. In other words, the five books or as the book of Moses. So keep your hand in Genesis 1 and look over at Deuteronomy 31, 25. I say Deuteronomy because that's the end of the five-book scroll. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So look at Deuteronomy and chapter 31, verse 25. Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And listen to the command to the Levites, these priests in Israel who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant in which the Ten Commandments is, he says, take this book of the law and put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. So Moses has written this book and wants them to take it and put it next to the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, that it might be a witness against them. Look at Joshua chapter 23 real quick. That's the next book after Deuteronomy. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. This is the book in which Joshua, one of the men who were faithful, one of the two were faithful in the second generation of Israel, when he takes them into the promised land. And Joshua writing says this in Joshua 23, look at verse 6. Therefore be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. In the book of the law of Moses, it's written by Moses. And the law of Moses, this five-book scroll of which Genesis is the first, is one of the three parts of the Hebrew Old Testament. In the way the Hebrews had organized their Old Testament, we organize it in three parts. So they organize it in three parts. The law, 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, sometimes in the New Testament just referred to as Moses or the law of Moses. And then the prophets, the former and latter, the former prophets being what we call the historical books like First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, or Joshua, Judges, etc. And then the latter prophets, those prophets being like Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, both the major prophets, which means our books are big, and the minor prophets, their books are small. I mean, literally, that's major, big books, minor, small books, no secret key to unraveling what we mean by that other than that. So we had the book of the law, or Moses, we had the prophets, and we had the writings. Think about the writings, they're everything from Psalms and Proverbs, Job, and then we get into First, Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, etc. These are the three parts of the Old Testament. Moses, or the law of Moses, the prophets, and the writings. Sometimes we hear it said like this. Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. So Jesus, in Luke 24, 44, when he comes to teach the disciples, we're told that as he teaches the 12 disciples on his resurrection, he taught them everything concerning himself from the book of Moses, or the law from the prophets, and from the Psalms of the writings. So this book of Genesis is the first book in the Pentateuch, the Law of Moses, and the first book in the Old Testament, the first book in the Bible. And this book was given to God's people by Moses during his ministry as the Redeemer of Israel. If you remember, Moses is the man whom God has sent to lead Israel out of slavery to Egypt through the Exodus account. And through the wilderness to the promised land, they come just to the edge of the promised land. And Moses is the one who writes this, and he writes it in the context of Israel's exodus and wilderness journey and heading to the promised land. We might say that Moses, in writing this, is keen to help Israel understand that the God who is redeeming them from Egypt is the God who created all things. He is the only God who is. Further, this creator is the God who made the promise to redeem fallen humanity from sin. This creator, this one who redeems them from Egypt, he's the one who made promises to their fathers, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we learn all of that in the book of Genesis. Genesis, as the first book of the Bible, is appropriately titled. The title just means something like the generation or the birth or the origin The beginnings of things. You might say this is the origin story of all things. The origin story of the people of God and the promises of God. And as such, it's arranged in a particular manner. So I want to consider that arrangement. We often break it down, and you'll hear me come back to this again and again. We often think of Genesis as Genesis 1 through 11, part 1. Here's the history of the cosmos, if you will. Cosmic history. Genesis 12 through 50. Here's the history of the patriarchs, Abraham Isaac and Jacob, right? And we tend to see those two parts, and that is helpful. But it's actually, if you will, specifically arranged more technically than that. It's arranged around what in Hebrew is called toldots, or in Greek is geneseos, or what we call genealogies, from which we get the word genesis. Genesis arranged around multiple genealogical lists, and the narratives that follow each genealogy. Now, I know when we come to genealogies in the Bible, it's sort of the part of the Bible where we go, okay, I'm going to skip this part of reading really quickly, right? 
And if you happen to make it through the Bible and you're just traveling to the Old Testament and you've even made it through Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and you feel like you're crushing it this year, then you come to First Chronicles. And you just have chapter after chapter after chapter of genealogy. And you start to think, okay, I'm going to give up now. Or I get it. It's a genealogy. I'll skip to the end and keep going. And you miss actually what's being told to you in the history of God's people and what God is up to. Because genealogies are quite important in scripture. And we're going to push into that more and more as we work through Genesis. But Genesis is arranged around genealogies followed by narratives with regard to that genealogy. So let me provide a bit of an outline of Genesis with that in mind. If you will, what we will look at over the next several weeks, Genesis 1 through Genesis 2, 3, what you think of as the seven days of creation, the seventh day God rests and we hear about the Sabbath, that whole section of Genesis is what we might call introduction or prologue. It's telling you about the creation of all things. And it's introducing to you God and his creation. And then in chapter 2, verse 4, we get the first toldot, the first genealogy. Look what it says. Chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. In other words, you're going to get a genealogy. The first genealogy is a genealogy of heaven and earth. And then there's a narrative that follows that in chapter 2, which is a narrative of the genealogy of heaven and earth as realized through humanity, really focused on this cosmic temple in which God has created us to dwell with him and worship him. And more on that later. That's the first genealogy. The second genealogy comes up in Genesis chapter 5. So look there, Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. This is Adam's genealogy with a narrative of sin and judgment. We've already at this point learned about the fall into sin and judgment and a promise of a redeemer. But now we're going to get in some more depth with Adam's genealogy. This is the book of the generations of Adam. And now you're going to get his genealogy with a narrative of sin and judgment. You all know that leads to this statement of the judgment that God found that man was wicked. And you know, all the intentions of his heart were wickedness. And so he's going to bring the judgment of the flood. And in chapter 6, verse 9, you get the next genealogy. Look there. These are the generations of Noah. And now you're going to get the, if you will, the narrative of Noah and the flood. And you're going to get the narrative of the covenant that's made with Noah. And you're going to pick up his genealogy again. So look at chapter 9 and verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So you're picking up some more of the genealogy of Noah, but in the context of the story of Noah's life with the flood and the covenant God makes with him. Now, the fourth genealogy is the genealogy of Noah's three sons. Look at Genesis chapter 10 and verse 1. And if you're making notes in your Bible, you just underline generations, generations, because you're just following the outline. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then you get a genealogy. It's the genealogy of Noah's three sons with a narrative of their sin at Babel and judgment that comes against them, followed by the completion of Shem's genealogy, one of Noah's sons. And that is driving us to the genealogy of Terah. Look at chapter 11 and verse 27. 
Now these are the generations of Terah. Now note the next phrase because this becomes quite important to the rest of the book. Terah fathered Abram. We're just narrowing in on genealogy after genealogy from the creation of the heavens and the earth and the original purpose for man in it to the fall into sin to the promise of the seed of the woman who would come and save us, crushing the head of the serpent. And we're narrowing in genealogy after genealogy on on who is that man. And now we're come to Abram. And then we hear the, if you will, the genealogy of Terah told in the narrative of his son Abram. And that carries us all the way through chapter 25 Chapter 25, verse 19. Look there. These are the generations. Actually, I skipped one. Go back to verse 12. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abram's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abram. This is what we might call an anti-genealogy. It is not through this line whom the son will come. It is, in fact, through this line who not the seed of the woman will come, but the seed of the serpent is traveling, if you will. It's a kind of anti-genealogy. Then you get the genealogy in 25, verse 19. These are the generation of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. And now you're going to get that story of Isaac through his son, Jacob. And it's going to carry you all the way through chapter 35 and verse 29. Go there, 35 and verse 29. And if you see how this ends with Isaac breathing his last, his sons Esau and Jacob bury him. 36 verse 1, the next genealogy. These are the generations of Esau, another anti-genealogy. And we get the genealogies of Esau from 36.1, really through 36.43. And we hear about Esau. In other words, this promised son is coming through, or seed of the woman is coming through Adam's line, is not coming through Cain or Abel, but through Seth, which we read that story, is not coming through all mankind, but somehow through this work, through Noah and his sons, and not through all three of Noah's sons, but one of Noah's sons being Shem, and not from all of Shem's sons, but from one of Shem's sons, who's Terah, and not from all of Terah's kids, but through one of Terah's sons, who's Abram, and not through all of Abram's kids, or both of Abram's kids, but through one of Abram's kids, Isaac, and not through both of Isaac's kids, Jacob and Esau, but through one of Isaac's kids, Jacob, and you just keep narrowing it down. Last genealogy, the narrative of Jacob through his son Joseph. Look at chapter 37. Jacob lived in the land, verse 1, of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. And now you're going to learn about the tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes that come from Jacob's sons. And you're going to learn specifically the story of Joseph and how Israel ends up in Egypt. And in that, you're going to hear the blessing that Jacob gives to his sons, which among his sons in Genesis 49, Jacob picks one out and says to Judah, through your tribe, this Messiah is going to come. Genesis 49.10. And so we're driving through this book around these genealogies and the stories that are told through them looking for the seed of the woman to come and looking at those who are opposed to the fulfillment of that promise. There is a driving story in all this that lays the groundwork of our understanding of God and his works toward us. Genesis provides the story of the creation of all things, the fall of man into sin, and the promise of a redeemer, and that's just the first three chapters. In this book, we're learning about the nature of all created things 
and how the grace of God will restore nature from its fallen state. We're learning that in the story of these genealogies and their corresponding narratives. That's what we're learning. But if we want to understand Genesis, we must start with the ultimate author of this book. I told you Moses is an author of this book. And yes, Moses is the human author. But this book was inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of God. God is its author. So we must spend some time contemplating who the God is who did all this work. We need to anchor our understanding of what we read in Genesis in the work of our triune Lord. For the triune Lord is God and there is no other. And that really leads to what I said is sort of like an excursus. It's something we need to pick up and anchor ourselves in as we start this book. Look at Genesis 1-1 again. We need to talk about the triune God who created. To some degree, this week I'm going to talk about the triune God who created. And next week, focus on him as creator. Look at Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God God is the subject. In other words, when I say God is the subject of the verb created, what I mean is God is the one performing the action of the verb. God is the one doing the creating. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, which we'll return to next week, but it's a Hebrew merism, which means everything. He created it all. This word for God here is used 35 times in Genesis 1. Do you know that? I just bothered to go through and count. 35 times. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, and God saw, God called, and God said, and God made, and God called, and God said, and God saw, and God said, and God saw. And you just hear it again and again and again. 35 times. God is the central figure In this chapter, he is the one doing the work of creation. The Hebrew word here for God is this word Elohim. I'm not good at pronouncing the gutturals, so you'll have to forgive me. If you want to hear them pronounced better, go ask Jace. But Elohim can be used to reference multiple deities, and it can be translated as gods. Did you know that? If you have never heard this, I want to be the first one to point it out to you so that someone doesn't come along later and say, let me confuse you. The word Elohim is a plural noun and can be translated as gods. However... While that's true, it's not being used that way in this context. Rather, in this context, it's a plural noun being used intensively. How do we know that? We don't know that because it's just a convenient apologetic point to make. Boy, it's just helpful to say that because it kind of gets us away from polytheism. That's not the only reason we know that. It's just not assertion we throw out there. We know that because the text shows us that. How? First... The word Elohim takes a singular masculine verb. This word for he created, Barak. It takes that in the beginning, God created, and it's a singular masculine verb. He created. Second, Genesis 2-4 makes it clear that the God being discussed is the Lord God, Yahweh, I am. Look at Genesis 2 and verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When I say the Lord God and you bring together these words, Yahweh and Elohim, you're hearing the Hebrew Shema. Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. We need to be clear about this. The word Elohim is never used 
to speak of polytheism when it is referencing Israel's God. Never. Rather, it's always being used, if you will, intensively. All that it means to be God, this God who created all things, he's that. God, and this is a kind of plural of majesty or power or honor. God, the only God who is, he created everything. This is the God who is. Look at Exodus chapter 3. If you remember this scene, Israel is in slavery to Egypt. They had gone into Egypt under Joseph. They were being blessed in Egypt under that Pharaoh at that time. Hundreds of years passed, 400 years pass, And now they're in slavery in Egypt under the Pharaoh at the time. And they're crying out for redemption from slavery. And God raises up Moses. They're no longer the size, by the way, Israel, of a family with lots of kids. Like maybe the Hepner family with 10 kids or 10 sons and grandkids. But they're the size now of a nation. They've grown into an entire nation. And they're crying out. And God sends Moses. And Moses meets God, if you will, at a burning bush. This kind of theophany. This appearance of God in the burning bush. The bush that burns but is not consumed. And as Moses is there, the first thing God tells Moses is don't come near. Not come on near. We're homies. Not that. Don't come near. Why? This is holy ground. And so God begins to address him and tells him he's going to go to Egypt and he's going to free the captives, if you will. Bring Israel out of Egypt in the Exodus account. And Moses asks him, well, who do I tell the people you are? Who do I say you are? And we read this in verse 14. God said to Moses, I want to stop there for a minute. God, Elohim, said Asher, which is, by the way, so you know, is a third-person singular verb again. Elohim, again, used with a third-person singular verb, a different third-person singular verb, not he created Barak, but Asher, he said. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. He is, I am. He is the one who is. He is not the one who becomes something. He is. God does not move or grow or change. God does not improve. He is. He is not in need of creation so that he might activate some potential himself that he lacked without us. He is. He is sufficient in himself. He is God. He is not a creature. We'll look at that more next week. Look at now with me Exodus 34 as we get more information about this God who is Exodus 34 and verse 6. And remember, these are the same people who received the book of Genesis as a five-scrolled book. They're learning about their God. Moses wants to see God, if you will, and God says, you can't see my face and live. And so God honors his request by, if you will, showing him the backside of his glory. We understand the backside of someone's glory is their low point. And so he's showing them that. And The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord Yahweh, the Lord Yahweh, a God, now listen to more descriptions, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. He is this God who is good and merciful and gracious and just. That's who he is. He is. 
That's just what he is. And this God, he is the God who created all things. He is the one who spoke and the universe leapt into existence. Now, I want you to hear how Protestants before us stated this. I want you to hear from the Belgic Confession. The Belgic Confession is a confession of the Dutch Reformation, and this is specifically in the 16th century, the Belgic Confession of 1561. And I want you to hear, we're going back to 1561, listen to how they describe our confession of God, and they get it right. We all believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that there is a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God, eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, unchangeable, infinite, almighty, completely wise, just, and good, and the overflowing source of all good. It is this God who creates and calls his creation good. He is the overflowing source of all good. He is. He is simple. He's not composed of body parts or passions. He isn't complex. He's simple. He is. Further, this God is revealed in Scripture as our triune Lord. He's revealed that way, as our triune Lord. Now, we don't have a clear revelation of God as triune until the incarnation of Jesus Christ and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Rather, we have a shadowy revelation that points to him. We have a shadowy revelation. We tend to use the word adumbration. He's adumbrated. He's foreshadowed or indicated faintly in the Old Testament as triune. But he's not clearly revealed as such. Look at Genesis 1 again. Go back there. I'm going to take you back through your Bibles a bit. Genesis 1 and verse 1 through 3. We faintly pick up some glimpse of this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There is good reason to argue that bringing those words together, the beginning and God, is pointing toward God as Father. Now, we don't know that when we're just reading the text right here at this point of God's revelation, but revelation progresses and we learn more information. And we see what was shadowed before becomes clear later. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And here's this person, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So we have some pointing toward the Holy Spirit, the breath of God, the Ruach. Here he is. And verse 3, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. God spoke. And what I'm contending is we have an adumbration, a dim, if you will, picture, shadow of the Father creating through his Son and by his Holy Spirit. We pick this up a little bit more in Psalm 33, so turn there. Psalm 33. There's a lot of text, so I had to narrow them down for the sake of time. Psalm 33 and verse 6. We've been shouting for joy in the Lord in this psalm. And in verse 6, we read this. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath, the Ruach, the spirit of his mouth, all their host. Now, my point is not that the Son, the Word, is just an instrument that God uses. What I'm contending is the Word of the Lord is giving you a shadow, if you will, of the Word, the substantial Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word and the Spirit are involved in the creation. My point isn't that the Son or the Word is just an instrument that God uses, nor that the Holy Spirit is somehow the one who just cleans up some disorder. That's not the point. No, there is one God who creates all things, and all the works of this one God are inseparable operations 
of the triune God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three persons in one God who creates all things. Now let me press this further. Look at Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 22. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Now, who's the me? Well, look at verse 12 of Proverbs 8 briefly. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. So the me who's speaking here is wisdom. Wisdom personified. Wisdom speaking as if wisdom is a person. But as wisdom speaks, it is giving you a shadowy outline of the one who is wisdom incarnate. Christ is the wisdom of God. The one who is the son of God. Look at verse 22. The Lord possessed me can also be translated. I think is even better translated. Fathered me at the beginning of his work. The first of his acts of old. He is eternally begotten. Ages ago, verse 23, I was set up at the first before the beginning. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. In the Septuagint, this Greek translation of the Old Testament, before the time of Christ, it's actually the word for begotten. See, before the foundation of all things, I was begotten. The Father eternally begat the Son. He's eternally the son of the father. The father didn't become the father. I became a father. There was much a time in which I was not the father. It is an essential to me as a human man to be a father. There was once a time when I was not a father. And then I became a father by having a son. The father is always the father. He has always begotten his son eternally. Now, if you want me to teach you how to wrap your mind around that, you'll have to ask James this week, I suppose. He's teaching on the Trinity. The one who is the son of God, the one who is eternally with God before the beginning, the one who is eternally begotten. Keep reading verse 26. Before he made the earth with its fields, in other words, I was begotten before he made the earth with the fields, or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limits, so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was, catch this language, beside him in his bosom, like a master workman. Keep that language in mind. And I was daily his delight. This is my beloved son, the one in whom I delight, the one in whom my soul is well pleased. Rejoicing, verse 31, in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. It's like as if you can hear Psalm 2 reverberating. Blessed are those who take refuge in him, who the Son, the eternally begotten Son, whom is the King of all the nations of the earth. And he goes on to say, Hear instruction, be wise, and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting besides my door. For whoever finds me, catch the language, finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. Look at John 1. I want to be clear. We have shadows here. But you know where the clarity is found? The clarity is found in the incarnation of the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, the pouring out of the Spirit. When Christ came, we learned with clarity of our triune Lord. Look at John 1, verse 1. In the beginning, if that's not a tip of the hat to Genesis 1-1, I'm not sure what is. In the beginning was the Word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, 
And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. Remember that? In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Drop down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and tabernacled, dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten son. Unfortunately, your ESV has left the word begotten this out, which it shouldn't have. Glory as of the only begotten son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him, John the Baptist, and cried out, This is he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only begotten God, again, should be the only begotten God, who is at the Father's what? Side. He has made him known. You see John picking up the shadowy elements of Proverbs 8 and tying them into Christ. He is whom we've been talking about. Colossians chapter 1 and verses 15, 16. Speaking of Christ, the beloved son, God's beloved son. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He has supremacy over it. For by him, all things were created. By who? The Son of God. All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Because we spent so much time in Hebrews, you probably all have it memorized by now. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now we need to be careful here. We need to be careful in the way we read scripture because it seems to be that we tend to think that because I don't see a clear revelation of something or a clear picture of something in one passage that comes before in prior revelation, that somehow that might not be true until later. In other words, what I'm saying is just because we don't have a clear picture yet in Genesis 1 of the triune Lord does not mean that God became something he was not does not mean that. Rather, God is eternally triune. The one God is eternally three persons subsisting in one being. This is the God who is creating all things in Genesis 1. The Father creates through the Son and by the Holy Spirit. This is the God creating all things in Genesis 1. And you need to hear this because this is the only God who is. There is no other This is why the church has long confessed faith in our triune God and the Apostles' Creed, something we say in our evening service and will eventually get to saying in this service, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, 
who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic or Universal Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So we've said that confession for centuries and centuries as a Christian church. This is our God. This is the God who created all things in the beginning. This is the God whom we trust. This is the God to whom we sing, the God whom we worship. This is the God who, in the beginning, created the heavens and the earth. And next week, we'll consider him more expressly in relationship to his work in creation. Let me pray. Father, we're thankful for your son and the clear revelation that comes in him and by the Spirit. We're thankful that your word has revealed to us progressively the truth, always, about who you are, what you are, what you've done. We pray that we would understand that you are our triune Lord, the God who created all things, the God who in the face of our rebellion promised to send your son, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one from the house of David, the one who was with you in the beginning, that he has come to save us from our sins. We're thankful you promised that. We're thankful that we see the unfolding of that promise throughout the Old Testament And that we see him truly, fully, finally in his incarnation and life and death and resurrection, ascension and pouring out of the Spirit. May you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. May we continue to look to him and trust in him and know that in the face of all the uncertainties that are happening around us, you alone are God. You have declared the beginning from the end. All your purposes will stand and in you is our comfort. In Jesus' name, amen.